Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Security Squawk Podcast. I'm your co-host, Brian Horning. I'm here with, who am I here with? Randy Ryan, Ryan O'Hara, Reginald Andre. What's up, guys? How are you? How's it going? Doing well. Not much, man. Just contemplating that song. Oh, Love boy. it. <laughs> yeah, because we're probably going to tell you something new. So today on the show, obviously, this is the... Uh, this is the what we call the business of cybersecurity, where we try to break down what the hell's going on in the world of cybersecurity and how it impacts you and your business. Whose turn is it? Ryan. <laughs> we don't have a fee for the show, but tell, tell our audience, what's the fee? Like and subscribe. You need to share this information out to people that you know might need it. Uh, that's that's the only thing we ask is, is uh, help us spread the word. Cybersecurity is important. It's something that everybody needs to uh, um, understand and, and, and not take for granted. So share it out to any business owners, any people you know who might be able to uh, benefit from uh, learning a little bit more about this and how to protect yourself. Yeah, share out the show. Put it on your social media. Five-star reviews on your favorite podcasting platform, iTunes especially, helps us out over there. Uh, but you can pretty much get us anywhere. We also have a website, securitysquawk.com. I think all of our podcasts are are, are posted there as well. Um, so it shouldn't be hard to find us and shouldn't be hard to share us. And remember, during the show, we talk about a lot of topics. If you have any questions along the way, you hear us mention something, you don't know what it is, don't be shy. Drop them in the comments. We'll answer them live on the show. But today, we're going to jump into an interesting some interesting information that we uncovered in as we were researching uh, a, a ransomware attack against Snap-on tools. Um, we also want to highlight some troubling attacks that are happening against smaller healthcare facilities around the U.S. and how prevalent these attacks are. Um, and then we also want to bring in some data about cyber insurance. We're going to talk about cyber insurance again and whether or not cyber insurance actually covers you. And we're going to talk about some examples of where cyber insurance maybe didn't help out certain businesses or victims. And uh, our friends over at the FBI, they're out there helping you out there and we're going to let you know what they're doing to help you. And you might be happy or you might be upset about it. But we're going to jump into that towards the end of the show. Um, so let's jump right into it. We got a lot to cover. I don't want to waste any time. Before we jump into all those topics, we want to touch on a topic that we talked about, uh, I believe it was last week, and it was this cash app data breach. Um, and we have a little bit of an update for everybody. Uh, and what is that update, Mr. Brian? Um, me? Oh, yeah. So, um, so, so we talked about this. This has kind of been the theme the last three or four shows, y'all. Um, somebody has a breach. They first come out and they say, you know, oh, nothing to see here. Move along. No big deal. Only a couple hundred people. And this specific case was 300, I think is what they said originally. Now they've come back and they've had to go to the government. You know, they maybe they can get away with a little bit when they're going to the press. But they've had to go to the, to the government and do their filing. And they've said as many as 8 million people have been affected uh, by this breach. So, you know, it's not really a, it, it's a big deal in that we, we've seen this over and over again. And, you know, I would kind of want to take a step back and, you know, the, we mentioned in the green room, the Kaseya hack, the Kaseya hack was really big. 
affected a lot of people, but they came out from the very beginning and were very, very open. And just think about how that's really helped to rebuild trust. I, I think that this whole thing of saying it's a few and then coming back weeks later and saying it's a lot, I don't think it's a good way to go. Well, and, and there's even a step before that, because most of them are coming out initially and saying, you know, we've we're investigating something, but we don't see any signs of any any type of compromise at that point. And then, you know, oh, well, there was something, but it happened a couple months ago and it didn't impact that many people. And then, oh, well, no, maybe it impacted a few more people than we thought. And then, then it's only after that story has been in the news for a couple of weeks where people are starting to you know, not notice it anymore, not drill into it. Then, then the real number actually comes out, but people have, have moved on and forgotten about it at that point. So it's kind of the uh, uh, disclosure playbook uh, du jour right now. We've got this whole thing in our culture of, you know, based on what you're saying, this whole thing of, you know, it's horrible and we're all disturbed and we're all upset today, but by tomorrow there's something new, Yep. you know? And then two days from now, it's like, wow, that just seems like old news, you know? Um, and, you know, I think that's that's maybe that's what they're trying to do. Just take advantage of America's uh, low attention span when it comes to news. You know, wait a couple of weeks after everybody's already gotten over it. It's like, oh, yeah, eight million. Yeah, we got blah, blah, blah. It's, it's too coincidental that we see the same playbook run week after week after week with these big organizations. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, I've, I've attributed that to the breach attorneys, right? They're, yeah. you know, the more incidents they're involved in, the more they have a better playbook to work off of. And that seems to be the playbook. I mean, I, I, I look at it as ever since that UHS cyber attack against universal healthcare services, their PR and, and what they did was a, was a complete debacle for about, you know, the three or four days after the attack. Um, and I really haven't seen too many mistakes as bad as that um, since then. But I don't know. I got to challenge you on the rebuilding trust part with Kasey, Randy. I, I don't. See that. <laughs> I agree. I knew that would uh, <laughs> that would raise a few eyebrows at the minimum. Yeah. She, you go back and watch the recording and look at my face. <laughs> rebuilding trust, but rebuilding it back to the point you had before the breach, which wasn't very high in the first place. So. Yeah. And I'm a pretty trust. I'm a pretty trusting guy, and uh, I know most of my colleagues aren't there. So, so all is, right, guys. So, go ahead. I said the point is protect your data so that you don't even have to deal with this. Protect yourself. Right. right. All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna volley the ball over to you, Andre, on this one. Uh, so get ready. But. Um, we were talking about this uh, ransomware attack against Con or, or against Snap Snap on Tools by Conti, um, and basically, as we always find out with many cyber attacks afterwards, we we have a treasure trove of information to work from, uh, to learn from, to see what this company did or didn't do, to end up in the situation that they're in. Uh, and we kind of pulled out a needle in a haystack here with this one. And what was the information that we that we got out of this one, Andre, that we want to talk about with everybody? Because I found it really interesting. Yeah. So the Conti group um, essentially had some uh, employees, if you want to call them that, 
and there was some riffraff between what's going on in Ukraine and they had a former member essentially leak private chats and um, weeks later there was a source code of uh, that that gave them their Bitcoin wallet address and when you do the conversion of 65,000 um, BTC it came out to that they had 2.7 billion dollars in revenue uh -oh. you lost me again did we lose them uh in and out we lost can you guys hear them i can hear them oh i must have muted them or something oh <laughs> yeah so so essentially um conti ransomware seven billion dollars yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people either don't believe or don't realize is, is how much money these these groups are making. Um, it's it's just a ridiculous amount. Maybe maybe Brian's having some technical difficulties. Conti's going after him. Sounds like it. They are mad at me because I, I you guys are dropping out on me like crazy. I just closed my. Uh, I was. <clears throat> Streaming some of the stuff that we were putting up on social media, but I closed it all out, so maybe that'll help. Uh, who knows? So, do we beat this one? Or are we good? Because I missed the last like minute or so well, of what you just said. Go ahead. Did Randy. the article really go into how they got inside the Snap-on network? Because I didn't really see a whole lot of detail about yeah, that. Yeah, you know? there's not really a lot of detail, and th this was uh, you know the, the the breach took place back in early March as well. So this was. Um, a little bit prior to Conti's internal issues. And the, the crazy thing about it, what it does mention, though, is that the data was posted on the dark web and then it was later removed, um, which means that Snap-on probably just paid the, paid the ransom. Well, maybe. I mean, I, I think because of the timing, you know, that, that was right in the middle of where they were having all of these issues. I, I think they were probably potentially pulling some of this stuff down themselves. Um, you know, they, they were you know, essentially having a ransomware gang version of a civil war at the time. So, you know, it's hard to tell exactly what happened and whether or not that uh, helped or, or further hurt Snap-on with that timing. I mean, it could have been worse for them, maybe, uh, yeah. if, if that wasn't going on at the same time. It is interesting that some of their uh, source code was released. Mm -hmm. um, these guys have one of the uh, reputations as one of the most ruthless you know, hospitals are cool, fine with them, you know, schools, whatever. Um, they just want their money. So be interesting to see what comes out of the source, source code being released and how much yeah. of it uh, was released and what kind of impact it has. Yeah, Man, 2.7 billion, you can buy uh, cybersecurity companies with that kind of coin. <laughs> Well, and I wonder, you know, if, if people from both factions internally had access to that, you know, what, what happened to that money now? If you got if you got a civil war going on in your ransomware group and you got people on both sides with access to that wallet, who knows what happened? Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and they started uh, back in 2020. So that's a lot of coin in two years. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, guys. So we want to talk about this article a little bit. Um, you know, it's no secret that major companies, governments, schools, anybody that's publicly traded and has to file SEC filings, that the word about ransomware and ransomware attacks on these companies, organizations, it gets out eventually. Um, the ones that we don't hear about, the ones that we 
don't focus on that much that we try to bring the light on shows like this and in other places are these small to medium sized businesses out there that constantly have to deal with these problems. And this article does a great job of highlighting that. And it's just a, an article that goes into detail about these small and rural hospitals and medical clinics um, that are just getting massively hit with ransomware and are causing, you know, an unprecedented crisis. I mean, this is happening in our, our, our urban hospitals and our suburban hospitals. But when you're talking about rural hospitals where it could be an hour plus to actually get medical care if that facility is, is down or can't support somebody, you know, it's a big deal. These, these rural hospitals, these rural communities um, depend on these facilities to be up and running. Um, you know, especially in life life saving situations. So, uh, and and these aren't the only sectors that are dealing with this. So, as we talk about this today, remember, guys, that this this isn't happening just in healthcare. This is happening in in dairy farms, in meat farms. This is happening all across America to what we traditionally consider small and mid sized businesses. So. Who, I don't care who takes the lead here, but let's dive into some of the stats, some of the things that we're, we're seeing in this article that we think is important that people should be aware of. I mean, um, I can I can jump in. Um, we're we're typically um, this often gets overlooked. So rural in general, um, you know, some of the largest areas of, of poverty in America are in rural areas. Um, and you're right. These small, smaller hospitals that are serving rural areas are literally a lifeblood um, where you might have one hospital that is 30 miles from you. And then the next hospital is 60 miles from you. And you don't have a lot of options when you're when you're out and, uh, you know, in the rural areas typically. And so these these ransomware attacks over the last several years are particularly <laughs> devastating. Um, because like you said, it could literally cost somebody their life because they're not able to get a surgery because all the computers are down. The crazy stuff, there's a lot of stats um, in this article, but a couple of stats that really jumped out at me um, was that their IT, two out, two out of five, says, says that their IT budgets have stayed the same or shrunk over the last year. Um, which is crazy because, you know, the government's pumping all kinds of money out there for, quote unquote, cybersecurity. They ought to be able to get into those funds and handle get in, you know, access them. And then also 73 um, percent of the IT administrators for the hospitals are saying that they still rely on legacy OS like Windows 2008, Windows 2003, probably Windows XP. I know last time I was at the hospital, we're not rural. Uh, we're more like a bedroom community, like far suburban. Um, and there was a machine in the emergency room that had a freaking Windows XP running on it. I took a picture of it. I'm like, come on, y'all. It's XP. XP came out like the beta came out in like, what, 99? You know, and it officially rolled out around 2000, 2002. I don't know what the exact numbers, but we're talking a 20-year-old uh, operating system. You know, bottom bottom line still running. So... There's a there's a need out there, uh, Brian, for for funding, for implementation, not only upgrading equipment, but putting uh, cybersecurity practices into place 
um, because the, this this is really a life or death situation uh, very often. So yeah. I just want to kind of mention real quick, the stats that you threw out are accurate for one, but those were industry-wide uh, statistics that they talked about and, and the ones that you just threw out. So that's, you know, they're basically saying that the industry set aside 6% or less of its IT budgets on cybersecurity, right? So that's, you know, let's put this in perspective. That's 6% of its IT budget. So how much of that is the, you know, represents the full budget of that entire operation. Mm-hmm. So we know for years it's been recommended that you spend, especially in a regulated industry like a hospital or healthcare facility, they're going to be closer to 6% plus of the total operating budget, not just the IT budget. Um, so, you know, when you're spending 6% or less of its IT budgets on cybersecurity, that probably means they're spending less than 1% of their entire uh, revenue pool to cybersecurity, which is why we have this problem. Like the, like we've mentioned this before, the companies need to start spending more. And you know, we're starting to come to reckoning with that in a lot of different places that you know, companies are, are not used to having to, to have the mindset that they have to spend this kind of money on this kind of stuff, but they're slowly getting the information that's making them realize that they've been severely underspending in this area. And this goes for all businesses, not just these small communities. The bigger problem that I see, and maybe if we could talk about this a little bit, is there these smaller areas no matter where you are small business medium-sized business but especially in these rural areas are less likely to have the resources needed to adequately invest in or deal with this problem Um, and that's the the thing that stands out to me it's like okay if the industry in a whole has this problem you're really going to have a problem in the rural areas and that's me why they're such a big target because it, it's not just about the, the computers themselves. I mean, this isn't something that's as simple as, you know, oh, hey, it's running Windows XP. We need to upgrade it. A lot of this is is not the computers that somebody's, you know, taking your name at the front desk. It, it's computers that are running equipment. So it's not as easy as taking that Windows XP, upgrading it to Windows uh, 10 and saying, good, we're good. That equipment may not be able to operate on modern versions of Windows. So mm-hmm. at that point, you're talking about needing to replace the equipment entirely. And so that's been a struggle. And, you know, Brian mentioned in the beginning of this this topic, you know, this isn't just uh, healthcare. I mean, this is something that we see often in manufacturing where you've got certain uh, tools and equipment that are running off of a computer that just it can't be upgraded to to something new without completely reinventing the wheel or replacing the equipment. And so that's why there's such a cost to this um, and not having the funds to do so, being in a rural area where it's it's, a, it's more difficult to even get that equipment is, is a really big problem. But this is why it's so important to have planning because yep. none of this should be a surprise to any business. I mean, unless the company goes belly up overnight, there really should be no surprise. You should be having these conversations with your vendors, with your manufacturers, with your you know your suppliers, and saying, okay, we're on this version right now. What is your roadmap to the next few months, years, et cetera? And if they may say, look, it looks like we're not going to be supporting this. We're going to come out with a new rollout, or we're going to go to cloud. Then that's the time that you have to start preparing to you know shift companies or or go with whatever they're saying. Yep. So a couple other things that 
you know, I saw in this article that were kind of a little scary. They were minor parts of the article, but one of these, one of the guys, this John Riggi, he was, he's the uh, senior advisor for cybersecurity for American Hospital Association. He's quoted as basically saying that hospital IT a, is understaffed and a lot of these teams that deal with a lot of technology in these facilities just don't have the manpower to deal with everything that's required to deal with everything that has a computer in a hospital. Um, and it's basically, he says, it's a high pressure IT job, which is no good. Like nobody wants to be in a high pressure IT job, even if they're being paid well. Um, we see burnout in this industry. It's a real problem. Um, and you know, it's getting harder and harder for companies to retain talent in these smaller IT operations or smaller IT departments because they're just not that attractive of a job. There's more challenging, uh, better work environments like managed service providers or cybersecurity companies that are more attractive to these people. Um, and the other thing he says is that you're oftentimes all alone, and that's no good for anybody. Nobody should be doing cybersecurity all alone. This is a team sport. Multiple people need to be checking things. If you're relying on one guy to check his own work, you're in a lot of trouble. I mean, that is just the worst scenario for doing cybersecurity is when you got the guy who's responsible for securing the things checking his own work. Um, you guys agree with that? Is that, that absolutely you know, that when, you, when you add on to that, that, that you're often not given much of a budget? I mean, it's it's why why would anybody want to put themselves in that situation? And the other scary thing for me is the fact that these small rural hospital facilities use the same stuff as the big guys, right? So now these rural facilities become testing grounds for bigger attacks against bigger hospitals and bigger medical facilities. And that's something that we need to take a look at as, as an industry in the healthcare industry that look, you know, these smaller, you can't, these bigger conglomerates, these bigger medical uh, outfits can't turn a blind eye to these smaller facilities and say, well, you know, they're run independently or they're over there um, because what they figure out on those systems may be the reason that they attack you successfully one day down the road. And that's, that's a big problem too, that I saw in this article. And then the other thing I'll kind of throw out there is, you know, a lot of these rural facilities too are near bases and military bases and mm -hmm. things like that. And when you see ransomware attacks, they steal information and you could potentially be having non-civilian information being stolen what soldiers are where and 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 you're going to know that they're at a certain base because they they are treated at this hospital or they see a doctor here or there there's a lot of information a lot of stuff that can be gained uh that makes it easier for cyber criminals to carry out future attacks by doing this so it's not just their problem it's all of our problems and we have to figure this out and we have to work together to make sure that we are not making this easy at any level of our economy. 
Yeah, and um, it even talks at the end of the article, it took them seven months to recover um, yep. Stylus Medical, and they had to spend $10 million, essentially replacing everything, starting from scratch. So you think it's expensive <laughs> to, to secure it. You see how much it is to, you know, remediation and, and give back to square one. And that's right. It's going to make, it's gonna make now, that it later. It's going to make that 6% you weren't spending seem like Jump you know, pennies on the dollar. And, and, and unfortunately we, we say this a million times on this show and we preach it out there, but people just think that they can get away with not spending money on this stuff and nothing's ever going to happen. Um, this problem is not going away. Like I think people maybe a couple years ago thought that this problem was going to be like a, you know, a five-year thing and it'll go away. I don't see this going away anytime soon. Nobody has the silver bullet. Nobody has, you know, I, I remember I blasted um, Cloudflare's CFO or somebody because she was out there basically saying they were going to sanitize all the connections to the internet and, you know, cyber attacks wouldn't be a thing. Well, where's that at? They're not even talking about that anymore because whatever came out of her mouth was so ridiculous that it was like, you don't even know what you're talking about right now. That's how you think this works. Um, so, you know, this isn't going away. We have to we have to start doing things and we have to start doing things at a lot of different levels. I guess the moral of the story and the moral of what we're talking about here is nobody's too small and bigger companies can't look at their smaller partners and say, oh, well, they're too small or what's what's the big deal if they get attacked? Well, we just pointed out three or four reasons why it's a big deal if these smaller entities get attacked. So what are what else is in this article that you guys want to talk about? Because I kind of hit on the things that I, I saw that I thought were important. What, do you, what else are you guys seeing in here? Don't everybody talk at once. No, there was one, one part in the section where they had to go back to the, the fax line. And uh, it's basically to send the charts and medical information from hospital has hospital. And the uh, fax machine uh, blew up in smoke. Yeah. I mean, then that's the thing. They got it, you know, for the one uh, facility uh, in the article that they talked about. I remember it saying that they were down for 23 days and they had to use pen and paper for note taking, but they struggled to care for patients without access to their medical history. Um, they couldn't schedule labs and, and, and imaging scans because the system that they use to do that is electronic and it's down and you really can't schedule somebody's lab or somebody's C uh, MRI or CAT scan using a piece of paper anymore. Um, and you can't even see like when doctors are available to see patients because the calendars, you know, probably an outlook. Um, and that's down and nobody can access this stuff. So, I mean, logistically, um, that kind of situation is a nightmare. But, you know, in that scenario, it, it could be life threatening. I mean, trying to to prescribe somebody something without being able to see their medical records. I mean, you could easily make a mistake that that's deadly at that point. Yeah. Or or just, you know, quite frankly, you can't you can't. Um, you know, get to treating them quick enough, right? If you're talking about a time-sensitive situation where you could have done something 30 minutes, 45 minutes before that, and you you just can't make a move because you don't have the data to know whether you can put that drug in them or not, 
you know, that, that, that's a problem. That, these are the things that these organizations are up against when they deal with this stuff. You know, not to mention, I remember reading about the healthcare um, facility in Wyoming where the, the next closest thing was a three-hour drive. Yep. Which is, is, is mind-boggling that, you know, these entities um, have this risk when that's the situation. So, so let's jump into this next one, guys. Cyber insurance, because, you know, everybody ha has it these days. It's all the buzz. It's kind of, you know, we can debate about this statement, but it's kind of driving cybersecurity right now. Um, I don't think as many companies would be doing uh, the things that we're seeing being done around cybersecurity uh, if it wasn't for cyber insurance. Obviously, if you're not in a regulated industry, this is probably the thing that's driving you to get this stuff done. You're probably have been told to, you know, have multi-factor authentication in place and use a password manager. And I don't know what else is the flavor of the month with insurance companies these days. Um, but now they're asking, you know, I, I'm starting to see insurance applications that are saying like, when's the last time you have had a risk assessment done by a third party? Like these are questions they're starting to ask. So if, You've never had a risk assessment done by a third party. You might find it hard to get cyber insurance the next time you go to try to renew. So let's just jump into it. I don't care who takes the lead on this one. What's uh, one of the things in this article that they point out where they ask the question, so you think you're insured against a cyber attack? Maybe, maybe not. So What's one of the things that could happen that would make us not have cyber insurance or not have our claim paid? So one of the, the biggest things is, is we're seeing now these, these long questionnaires asking you what kind of things you're doing to protect your, your business. Um, and, you know, questionnaires for insurance, you know, whether it's cybersecurity, whether it's life insurance, you know, oftentimes are worded really oddly uh, to where you, you know, it's hard to understand exactly what they're asking, right? Um, so if you don't know much about technology, and, and even if you do, I mean, I, I've seen IT providers who were very good at, at general IT, but not as versed in cybersecurity, like look at some of these questions and have no idea what they were trying to, to answer there. So making sure that those questions are answered accurately um, and knowing that, you know, what the question is so that you can answer it accurately. You may think you know the answer, but if you don't answer that accurately and then you need to make a claim and they come back and take a look at that, that questionnaire later and find out that you weren't doing the thing that you thought that they were asking that you answered on the paper, but really wasn't what they were looking for, you know, you might lose that claim. So it's really, really important to make sure that you're working with an expert when you're, when you're answering these questions to make sure that, that you're legitimately answering these questions. I, I didn't understand is not going to be something that is, is valid that they're going to say, Oh, well, Hey, your mistake. Sorry. Here's your money. Yeah. So one of uh, one of the things, too, is not only that, but also in your policy, it states that certain things have to happen. Right. One of them could be if you have a compromise that involves more than 500 records. Right. And that stipulation might be um, that you must notify the media if the breach, breach exists 500 records. And if you refuse to do so, like you're like, I don't want to go out there and tell the world that I that this just happened. Why do I need to do that? Well, your cyber insurance isn't going to pay because that stipulation is in there. And that is a very common 
uh, clause in cyber insurance agreements is that you will go and do this if this happens. Um, so check your cyber insurance policy. Make sure you don't have that language in there. If you do, know what you're up against. Uh, I'm not, I don't think that's something you could probably get written out or taken out. Um, there's a reason that that's in there. Um, and, you know, these are the things you need to know about. So there, what else we got, guys? What else is something uh, that could happen to a business where their cyber insurance, you well, know, doesn't pay? At the, I mean, at the end of the day, the insurance company has to have less claims than money it takes in on a year-over-year right. year basis. And right. – so or else they'll go out of business. And so they're they're basically just just like a hawk looking in to make sure things are happening. And a couple of things like keeping meticulous records about the fact that you are actually doing cybersecurity training, that you are actually requiring MFA. I mean, the whole point of all of this is, you know, it's kind of like um, we've been saying this for for a couple of years now. It's kind of like. You know, you wouldn't expect your car insurance company to just pay for you to go out every night and drink and then back into poles and hurt people and do horrible things because you were drunk. I mean, that's a gross negligence. They can take you to court and say, we're not paying for this because it's gross negligence. And that's really where this is moving, where if you're not doing the things that they ask for, which change year by year, um, you know, your car insurance it re-ups and you just pay it. You just move on because it's not rapidly changing year by year, but you can't do that anymore with cybersecurity insurance. It's changing so fast. You've got to read it. you got to know the hoops they want you to jump through beforehand to be able to get paid after. Um, yeah, I get that includes records and doing certain things where up front they'll say, yeah, click here, sign here if you're doing all this stuff. You're like, oh, yeah, click here, do here. We're doing it all, quote, unquote. But if you're not really doing it, you're not going to get covered. Um, and right. they're going to look because they're really losing their shirt. Not I don't know about losing their shirts, but, you know, they are not comfortable with the amount of money that they're losing compared to the amount of money they're bringing in. Right. So the difference between where we were last year and where we are today with cyber insurance is pretty simple. You could get away with just telling the insurance companies that you were doing this stuff. And now they've kind of tightened up the wording in the agreement and it's changed over the years. And what you probably don't realize is the fine print has changed significantly. Um, and when you were able to just say you were doing things in the past, should it come time that you file a claim, you will need to provide documentation that you're actually doing this stuff. And you can't just create that documentation while you're in the middle of a ransomware attack, right? They know what to look for. They know the paper trail that exists with this stuff. Everything's timestamped. It can be proven when it was done. So if you're telling the insurance company, for instance, that you're giving your employees a cyber uh, training and awareness campaign, and you have no ability to prove that these are occurring on a regular basis, and maybe they are, and you're just not documenting it, right? Maybe you're doing something, but if you are called out on the carpet to say, hey, prove to us that this has been going on for the last six months, if you can't do it, it's just as well that you might as well not have been doing it at all because you can't prove it's being done. Self-attestation is gone. 
So if you want to get paid on your cyber insurance policy, you better make sure that the things that you're required to do are not only getting done, but you have a way to track that and, and provide a report that it's been going on since you signed that, that since you renewed or re-signed that policy. Um, anything else you guys want to add on this one? Another thing with this too is, is uh, you know, you'll, you'll hear from people too. Well, oh, well, I'm, I'm, you know, my insurance company, I've, I've got coverage and they didn't ask me for the, any of those questions. Look at your limits. Mm-hmm. The policies that are not asking these questions have super low limits to the point where it doesn't even it doesn't even do them any good to ask the questions because it's just going to be confusion for something that they're never going to have to pay out for in the first place. Because mm-hmm. one, you're either not doing the things to, to protect yourself. So there's nothing nothing that you're going to be able to pay to recover in, in the first place. But two, those those limits are so small, it's not going to do you any good. So if you're not getting those questions, chances are pretty good that your policy isn't going to cover much anyway make sure that you're aware of what those policy limits are. And also that's a great point, Ryan, because if you think about it, the questionnaire is really just a favor for the customer, if anything, because you could even see it as that because they can put this in, they can put like, you need to have A, B, C, D, E, F in the policy, send it to you, you sign it. It doesn't matter if they sent a questionnaire or not. I mean, the Mm -hmm. questionnaire would have been good if you got it because then you could line your stuff up. But at the end of the day, you signed a contract that with them when you re up that says, you know, hey, if you don't have MFA, we're not going to pay. If you don't have, you know, blah, 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 we're not going to pay. Like, so I just I just think like you, even if you don't get a questionnaire, it may your policy coverage may be low or it may just be that they didn't want to send you one. I mean, my my car company, my car insurance never sends me a questionnaire about car insurance. You know what I mean? They did when I first signed up, but they don't every year. Um, so I don't know. I just think that we have to take matters in our own hands here and we got to be more proactive about our policy and make mm-hmm. sure we're lining up with it if we expect to get paid. Yeah. So the other thing too is, is and we, and a couple of things that I want to kind of wrap up with here is we, and I'm, I want to get to two questions that I saw come in towards the end. And then we have one or we have our FBI topic to talk about. Um, but one of the important ones, this might be stating the obvious, but Catastrophic, catastrophic events, anything that's deemed a, uh, a terrorist type of uh, attack or a nation state sponsored attack. These are all kind of well-known clauses and laws that are written into place for the insurance industry. And if any of those things kind of come into play here, you're not going to be covered by cyber insurance because there are exclusions in, in almost every policy um, that pertains to that unless you buy a rider that that wipes that out. So, you know, out of the gate, standard default out of the box, you're not going to get covered for catastrophic type of events um, unless you have that rider in place. The other thing is, is we had, I would say maybe three, four or five months ago, I don't remember, we had a company come to us uh, to do a risk assessment on their business. And it was prompted because of, of cyber insurance. They, they got their cyber insurance renewal, uh, or no, you know what? They The owner has never had cyber insurance, um, was going to purchase cyber insurance. And in that process, um, he was getting asked a lot of questions that he really didn't know or understand the answer to. Or maybe he knew, um, you know, on his with his limited knowledge that he wasn't doing everything that he was being asked. So he brought our company in to kind of evaluate his environment and say, you know, here are the things you need to start doing. Um, and we did that and we 
we, we met with them and went through the results of the assessment. And at the end of the assessment, uh, the question was posed to us, like, what should we do about our cyber insurance? And the reason I'm telling you this story is because it lends to my next point, which is you become uninsurable. Uh, and that is a thing that's happening right now. If you're applying for cyber insurance and you got to kind of think of this as like, um, you know, I guess when you apply for maybe credit or something like that, if you apply for credit, if you apply for a loan and you have bad credit, well, the next agency really doesn't have to pull your credit. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of out there that you're, you have poor credit and this is the same thing with cyber insurance it's kind of kind of be out there in a database that you aren't doing cyber insurance properly you're not doing um cyber awareness training you're not implementing multi-factor authentication and it's going to get to the point where you're failing to maintain proper records um, and the insurance companies are going to document this and then it's going to kind of be out there to where you are sort of kind of for a short period of time or maybe a few years on a blacklist for cyber insurance. And that's where this is heading. Um, so our recommendation to this uh, company that we did this assessment with was take care of the things that we've identified in our assessment before you go and apply for cyber insurance because we don't want this to happen to you. And uh, I think it was the first time that he actually heard somebody say like, hold off, don't go get this yet because your company's not ready and it could do damage to you down the road if you apply now and your cybersecurity practices are in the state that they're in. Um, so that's kind of all I wanted to say, but that's where we are. I mean, you guys got to get this stuff done. Um, don't fudge it anymore. If you've been fudging it, if you've been telling people that you're doing things and you're really not doing them, it's a really bad practice these days because it's coming to bite companies in the butt almost a hundred percent of the time. So what else guys said, said it all good. Cause I want Randy to go crazy now. Cause we're going to talk about the FBI. <laughs> so the FBI is doing the uh, citizens of the United States. I guess we could debate about this, right? Is this a favor or is this, going somewhere where we really don't want our government to go right and i guess part of this is why certain people uh are not in this country right now um and this happened with the exchange hack i don't i don't think this is related but i remember the fbi went in and fixed some exchange servers unbeknownst to the person running the exchange server um so they could prevent attacks by nation states against companies who were not patching the well-known vulnerability in the Microsoft Exchange server. So now we have the FBI secretly removed Russian malware to thwart global cyber attack. Um, Randy, I'm going to let you take the lead on this yeah. one and then you just feel free to jump in. Well, you know, I, I have uh, some mixed emotions about this. Um, it does mention it could be a mistake in the article that it was um, that it was thousands of small to medium businesses around the world. Um, the FBI wouldn't really have, you know, if they have authority to do this for U.S. citizens or U.S. based businesses, you know, they wouldn't have that authority at all for, you know, an international business. So I don't know if they were targeting just Americans. Um, you know, I am I am a little torn about this because, you know, 
um, you know, are, do they really have the right to jump in and do that? And then on the other hand, you know, we are in a situation of, you know, potential war um, and, you know, a war that involves us directly, a hot war, if you will, with uh, Russia. So, you know, maybe they did us a favor. I'm not really answering that question, man. Uh, I'm just kind of telling you my, uh, my uh, thoughts on it, which are all over the map. All right. So let's break it down because I, you know, I, I don't care who takes this question. So somebody answer, but what the hell happened? Like, let's just break it down there. Like, okay. Obviously high level. There was Russian malware. What was it on? How did it just get on somebody's computer potentially? And then how did the FBI get into the system to get rid of it? <laughs> like th these are questions that are kind of going through my head right now that if I don't know these answers or I'm looking at this as a person who's not involved in cybersecurity, I'm looking at this going, did my computer, did what was it affected here? Was it computers? Was it phones? Anybody well, have it, any? It was uh, fire firewalls, uh, WatchGuard Technologies, uh, Firebox specifically. Um, I'm not sure if the vulnerability allowed them to have the access, the outside access, to be able to go in and then remove the malware from the devices. There, with this would be on the edge of a network, um, supposedly protecting you know the network from outside uh, threats. So I don't know if. The vulnerability allowed them to go in from the outside or if the malware opened up a way for them to go in from the outside or, you know, it every so often, I'd say about once a year, um, there is some sort of revelation. You know, I remember recently there was a revelation that the Chinese government had a vulnerability in Windows. It goes like all the way back to XP, I think, you know, and they mostly did it in Eastern Europe you know, or something or Europe or something like that. I don't remember all the details, but maybe the FBI knows of a vulnerability in these particular devices and maybe they just use that to get in. So I don't know that they're going to say either. Right. So one of the things that we do know for sure is that the FBI um, did obtain a secret court order to conduct the operation along with several law enforcement and intelligence agencies around the world. Uh, leading to the excess of the operation, which essentially was removing the malware from these firewalls. Now, we don't know or we're not being told what the hell this malware could have actually done. Um, we're being led to believe that these fireboxes uh, or these watch guard firewalls could have been turned into um, botnet drones, so to speak. Um, but it's also possible that these could have been used to spread malware on a, on a mass level. Um, so, you know, I don't, I, I just don't know. I just, this reeks to me of like lots of questions in my mind of like, you know, is this another company that worked with our government to have a backdoor built? Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and the fact that we're still in a world where we're, you know, having intelligence agencies go in and do things for private companies without their knowledge um, just reeks to me of governments continually asking tech companies to put back doors in so they can access 
company information, get in the network whenever they want, for whatever reason they want. Uh, and that's what this smells like to me. And I'm just calling a spade a spade. And I know Randy doesn't like to go there, but you know, I'm not saying that's where Randy was even going, but that's where I'm going when I look at this stuff and go, you know, what, why can't we do this the normal way, the quote-unquote normal way? WatchGuard puts out a CVE saying everybody needs to patch WatchGuard, right? Just like we do every other. Instead, this attack was like, and you mentioned it, Randy, um, you know, this attack was let's just get this done quick, right? And With, I, Without I just, burning the access that we, we know we have to these yeah. things. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's a global it's a global game. I mean, and and you know we're talking about us on one end of it at this point, but you know we're we're on the other end uh, often enough as well. So, all right, guys, we're about fifty minutes in, and uh, we got a couple questions. Let's get through these quick. Um, first one is going to be from Stephen, uh, and this goes back to some articles that we were talking uh, towards the beginning of the show. Should it be the government's place? to offer financial aid for rural hospitals to upgrade their IT. Is this a public health issue? I'm just going to go in and say um, I have no idea because I don't follow it, it, what's going on with the infrastructure bill, but that did have things like this in that bill. Um, and that's actually going to get down to um, the people that need it. I have no idea. I don't even know if that bill is actually a thing that passed the Senate thought it did but I don't, I don't see a lot going on with it so um, i think this is a farther reaching issue of you know it budgets not being appropriate across yeah. the board not not just with right. i think this is just a a really glaring example of that 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 can have life and death consequences but it's mm -hmm. it's an issue that we see across the board and i'm it's no secret i've said it on this show that the government don't expect the government to come help you on this like that the, like that that mentality kind of needs to go out the window. Like if the government comes and provides support, assistance, you know, to help you pay for this, great. But that that's not my, like, the fact that we keep looking at the government to solve this problem is, is again, the wrong way to look at this. Like, mm -hmm. this is a very solvable problem by private businesses, by private industries, if they take the money and invest it. Um, yes, it's going to cause prices to go up. Yes, it's going to contribute to inflation. But again, with, with, with a lot of the things and a lot of the decisions that we're making today in this country are all things that lead to higher prices down the road and you can't keep kicking the can down the road. It eventually comes, we call it technology debt. We talk about it all the time. It builds up and builds up and one day the, the man's going to come and say it's time to pay. Right. Whether that could come into a form of a cyber attack, that could come in the form of regulation. But all these things are coming to play for businesses right now. And it's not a great time because there's a lot of other in price price pressures in the market. So having to invest more in cybersecurity isn't going to feel good right now. But unfortunately, your options are running out real quick. I mean, that's the reality. So it's more likely you're going to be required to do these things than it is that they're going to somebody's going to give you yeah. money in order to do them. Right. Yeah. And there's a there's a long history of the government mm -hmm. throwing money at things, you know, and it not really making a difference. You know, we've 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 spent trillions of dollars on things. We could start naming a list that 
all this all these decades we've spent money on and had it made a difference. So I would I would see it more the government's um, the government's place could be it could be in teaching um, and, you know, working with the, the hospitals because, you know, they are critical infrastructure, working with them to be more aware of this issue. So you're so you're right. They can start doing it and start charging more or whatever they have to do. You know, maybe they've got some positions at the hospital they can get rid of, um, you know, maybe um, requirements of these hospitals to be up to certain standards. Um, and I don't know about the uh, infrastructure bill either. Um, I know there was money for governments that was put in there. Um, I know they mentioned critical infrastructure and cybersecurity. Although I want to say it was like 200 million, which is a lot of money, but that was out of like what, $7 billion or something like that it was a drop in the bucket compared to all the other money that they were printing as fast as they could and sending it out on carts to all these other issues. Wow. I can't believe I said that. And it's just, but it's just, isn't it a perfect encapsulation of the sign of the times, right? You're going to, you got a $7 billion pool of money and less than 1% is dedicated to cybersecurity, which right. is what we see across the board. Right. So, right. you know, if the government's going to take the lead on cybersecurity you know, it's one thing to have a summit and to put it out in the news and have a few press releases and then, you know, have an, you know, an angry CISA director or an angry White House press secretary come out and say, yeah, we're doing stuff. But then you have a bill that goes out and less than 1% is dedicated to cybersecurity. I don't know how much, you know, actions speak louder than words. And if a business looks at that and goes, hmm, well, the government didn't think it was too important to spend the money on cybersecurity, so why should I? It's a very logical way for people to think about this problem. Um, the other thing, too, is, is that, you know, we can't, you know, we can't look at this as, as, a, as a problem, like I said earlier, that the government's going to solve. We have to we have to figure this problem out without the government because, that you're just getting a lot of lip service from the government and that's just the reality of it. So ribbon burger, should the government rather not set some form of compliance for the medical industry to have an up-to-date disaster recovery plan? Well, they do. Um, they have HIPAA, <laughs> which they have to follow. I, I guess should the question be, do they, should they enforce it? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And I guess that's the great debate, right? Our, you know, I, I talk to doctors in, in, the, in the medical industry and they don't seem to care too much about HIPAA or think that HIPAA is ever going to come get them. Um, but we know that that's not true. I mean, mm -hmm. HIPAA does, you know, maybe not enough, mm -hmm. maybe because they don't have the resources, maybe because it would just be too much to go after everybody. But there's HIPAA violations every single month. That, Maybe too know, late too. I think a lot of times those violations don't come to pass until something actually happens. That well, that's usually when it does happen. Yeah. There's no. I'm not aware of any proactive right violations or fines that are put on HIPAA violators. It's always after the fact, right? So it's you know they're willing to to gamble right until you know, until I guess, you know, I don't even know if this is a good example until it becomes more like the IRS where you're getting audited, right. Um, spot checked to whether you're doing this stuff, 
it's always going to be after, you know, right of boom, after an event where they come in and go, oh, you, you know, let's just make this whole situation a hell of a lot worse for you because not only is your business fucking down, but now we're going to hit you with hundreds of thousands of dollars in HIPAA fines. And guess what? Now you can't bill through Medicare. So basically you're going out of business. So it's the same problem we have with the IT budgeting, really. I mean, people don't think that they're going to be impacted. They, they tell themselves that, you know, they're the exception, that, that they're too small, you know, any number of reasons why they're not going to be hit by this and they don't learn until they are, they are hit. So HIPAA doesn't right. and, and the reality of it is, is if, you do get hit by it, if you do get hit by it, two things are working against you for you to get back into business. So if you're, if you're a medical professional running a small doctor's office, you're going, okay, well, if I get hit with ransomware, not only am I going to have to deal with the cyber criminals, but I'm also going to have to deal with the government regulators that come in and try to shut my business down. So chances are I'm going out of business if this happens anyway. So I'm willing to take my chances. If I'm a 60-year-old doctor and I'm looking at retirement in the next five years, you think I'm spending a dime on this? No, I'm taking my chances. And that's how most people, I think, think. Like, I think they think, like, hey, I'm going to take my chances with this and ride out the rest of my career. Now, if you're a younger outfit, new outfit, you know, and you want to be in business for a while, you should probably do something. Uh, but I can absolutely see the logic behind somebody saying, I can make it another five years without having to deal with any of this stuff, right? Oh, and then, if you want to know, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, if you want to know um, how it's going in the HIPAA violation department, just uh, Google HIPAA um, wall of shame. Um, and it will take you to the actual, um, the government keeps a website where they post all the people and you can see, you know, they were breached. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. Um, and the amount of fines and stuff, it's pretty crazy. So um, it, it is happening. And you're right. Maybe they're under underfunded and there is this huge, huge denial um, in the, you know, I can't say um, among everybody, but I know, especially I see it a lot with doctors, you know, just like, well, you know, I'll just deal with it if I get, if I get caught. Um, right. <laughs> right. It's just not good. I mean, no, it's, it's, just, it's, it's over after that. I mean, right. it's just like, I'm going to drive my car 120 miles down the road. And if I hit a brick wall, so be it. Yeah, that's crazy. And in Texas, we have a whole nother on top of HIPAA called SB 300. Um, and it's very similar. In some some instances, it's a little more strict. And, you know, it's just crazy that people just ignore, just ignore. It's 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 effort to get compliant, but it's not the end of the world and it's right. not going to kill your business. No, so. and it's a lot cheaper than the other mm -hmm. side. So yeah. we'll end with that, boys. Thank you for your inputs and your contributions and your expertise. Another very informative show. We've had a lot of viewers today, a lot of likes, and thanks for the questions from our uh, our fans. Remember, like, share, subscribe to uh, Security Squawk, and we'll see you in the next episode next week. Take care, everyone. See you later. See you.